Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Saturday, May 7th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpert. An unprecedented Supreme Court leak in the abortion debate it has ignited. Now, the question I have, Jared, is whether or not abortion prevails as a key issue in the midterms. And U.S. intelligence is helping Ukraine defend against the Russian invasion. It makes sense and would point to some of the changes in U.S. policy we've seen in recent weeks. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I read something this week I never thought I'd read. A draft opinion from the Supreme Court written back in February and leaked this week to Politico was published. The full 98-page draft. It's extraordinary on two fronts. First, nothing like this has happened. This is the first time in modern history a work product like this has ever been seen by the public. It's a remarkable breach of Supreme Court protocol, well known for secrecy and certainly not prone to the kind of leaks that happen across the street in the U.S. Capitol. If the draft reflects the eventual outcome of the case in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, that too is extraordinary. Justice Samuel Alito's opinion would overturn the abortion protections established nearly 50 years ago in the landmark Roe v. Wade case. Alito, in the draft, writes, Roe must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. The Mississippi law at the center of this case would ban abortions after 15 weeks. But legal analysts say the draft opinion would allow states to go further in abortion restrictions. And several so-called trigger laws would do just that if Roe is overturned. It is breathing new urgency into the abortion debate here in Washington. Democrats in the Senate plan a vote next week on federal protections for abortion access, a law that would essentially make any Supreme Court decision moot. So we will start with this story and the political earthquake it is setting off on Capitol Hill and around the country with my colleague, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. You know, Democrats, you know, they took a similar vote uh, akin to this uh, February 28th. Mm-hmm. It was a procedural vote to break a filibuster just to call up the bill that the House had passed last fall uh, that codified Roe. Now, that passed. You know, it's a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. It passed. But they could not even get the bill up on the floor because it was being filibustered. And there's no way you have 60 votes, uh, you know, on the floor. Now, that said... Well, uh, it didn't even get mo- 50 votes, though. That's right. And there were several absences that day, too. So that's important. But you, but that way you get everybody on the record. But you also show your base that you are doing something. And there's a reason why at the very end of the week, 
when the the Senate was basically busting out of town after a pretty unproductive week, frankly, uh, that the first, the last thing that they did was they held a press conference about two o'clock, two thirty in the afternoon yeah. on Thursday with Chuck Schumer to say this is what they were going to do. Now, the question I have, Jared, is whether or not abortion prevails as a key issue in the midterms. It definitely gets out and energizes the Democratic base and these pro-choice voters on their side. Uh, But when you look at this Gallup poll from a few weeks ago, they talked about the number one issues were, guess what? Inflation, gasoline prices and the border. Now, Obviously, this meter is going to move because we've had yeah. a real time event I mean, here. Yeah. And, that's and we've heard that from this. from Schumer. I mean, Schumer has said as much, right, that all of these previous votes and all of these previous poll questions were all in the abstract. And now it's not in the abstract. Right. Right. And that this is real now. And yeah. and by by holding a vote next week and by holding a press conference and by, you know, screaming from the mountaintops, that's very important. But I'll tell you, the one thing that's key Democrats have to be very careful here about not going too far with this to alienate moderate voters. That's where I was going to go. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're Joe Manchin, I believe voted no when this came up for a vote in February, if I remember correctly. You have pro-life Democrats or moderate voters who were not willing to support President Trump because they didn't like his antics, his temperament, you know, a whole host of, you know, throwing the riot at the end there. You know, they might have liked him before and then the riot, you know, that was the last straw. But they generally embraced him because they liked his judicial picks uh, and how they would rule. And so that was something that was very important. And Republicans have made this a key part of their agenda for years Mm -hmm. now, far more than the left has. And so the Democrats have to be very careful about not making this election about President Trump and his judicial picks, which is basically something that Chuck Schumer has said. I mean, he said on the floor the other day, Jarrett, that uh, Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh, they lied. That was the verb he used, right. lied, well, I mean, so that during was their the confirmation next... hearings. I was going to ask you about that. There are a lot of things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the Republican reaction to this as well. But let's pick it up where you just left off, because... He's not the only one who has suggested that that perhaps these nominees lied. Um, uh, You know, we saw a a less blunt statement from uh, Senator Collins, uh, Susan Collins of Maine, a Republican who supports the Roe v. Wade precedent, supports these abortion protections, put out an interesting statement where she kind of suggested, listen, if this is what the outcome is, um, it is not kind of my understanding of where these justices were. Um, what did she mean by that? And how does this then change kind of the confirmation process, if at all? Well, this is cracking the door open a little bit uh, in Susan Collins there and, and kind of defending her vote. You know, she had gone into mm-hmm. this basically saying, yes, I'm willing to support Brett Kavanaugh because he has basically told me and, and things I've read and studied here that he believes that Roe is settled law. Uh, And and now you're having to, you know, you you feel like you've been thrown under the bus on this a little bit. You know, the vote on Kavanaugh was 50-48. You know, so so a vote like Susan Collins for, that's very important. Uh, So that's something that, uh, that, you know, if you're a senator, you're like, wait a minute, I'm going to hear it from people back home because this isn't what I predicted would happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I even remember talking to a Democratic senator uh, who didn't vote for Brett Kavanaugh, who actually was like, you know, you know, I listen to him and things, and I think it sounds pretty reasonable. And I, the, my conversations in private, pretty reasonable. I won't tell you who it was, because it was that the conversation I had with this Democratic senator a few years ago was pretty private. But that they were like, you know, I actually think things are going to work out better than people think. 
And now, and I've not seen that <laughs> senator this week, but, comma, I would love to go back and have that conversation again. And they probably think, yeah, this is so, what my concern was. I mean, because the, the question of, you know, is Roe v. Wade settled law has been asked probably of every Supreme Court nominee since the decision, right? Certainly in the last 20 years, it's been asked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've heard justices sort of answer it in that way. It's settled law. It's precedent. It, it's super precedent, however they, they've described yeah. it. A way to get away from directly answering the question. Right, which is understandable. But I guess the question then is, so what sort of becomes of that question now? And and how did senators now try and weigh the answers that that a a nominee gives them at at these hearings? You're going to have to define where you stand. I mean, that's certainly going to be the question from the Democrats and maybe even some of the Republicans, frankly, too, depending on on who's doing the nominating here, Uh, besides defining what a Oh, a woman is. That's going to be another question on the questionnaire right. now, as we've learned in the in the past hearings for Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, but, you know, one of the most interesting developments of this entire week is that Republicans, they don't quite know how this is going to work out. Uh, you know, they're kind of like the dog that caught the car. They have pushed and they have and they have known, you know, this is an issue that it would that that worked for them. But both sides, if you really talk to them privately, kind of thought that this whole issue on abortion politically was where they wanted it because you could raise money off of it. You could go to the court from time to time and, and raise cane and protest and do all these things here. And it actually kind of worked for, you know, about, you know, almost 50 years there. Yeah. And now well, apparently we'll see. So it does not. And, and so that's a problem. And so that's why Republicans have been a little more circumspect, because politically, on its face, it does work better for Democrats, especially when you have kind of this, you know, you know, disenchanted electorate with, uh, you know, especially left wing voters, pro-choice voters, you know, disenchanted with President Biden and, and, and the Congress here. Well, that can really rev them up. And this is why they're going to go back and point to people like Gorsuch and Coney Barrett and also Kavanaugh. And here's the one here. This is the biggest issue. This is why this inflames the left so badly. And you got to look at the history on this. That is why this really tees off the left, because they think that they have been screwed on this, frankly, four times, starting with Garland and then going through Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and then Barrett. And then you get this end result where ostensibly they undo Roe. So I I guess that's another question, because I know Mitch McConnell was asked about that this week. You know, why aren't you celebrating? You've worked your career trying to you know, get the judiciary in in line with where you think it ought to be. And certainly overturning Roe v. Wade is something that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans have talked a lot about as they have vetted their own Supreme Court nominees, as they have vetted lower court nominees. But when he was asked about it, uh, there was no touchdown dance. There was no spiking of the football, if you will. He wants to focus, as most Republicans this week have, on the leak itself. Who leaked it? Why did they leak it? This undermines the integrity of the court. Why is that the reaction and not sort of celebrating what appears to be a pretty significant development for their cause? Well, for the reasons I stated earlier, that both sides kind of liked where abortion was politically. They could raise money off of it. If you're the aggrieved side, you know, most most pro-life voters are Republicans and they're like, oh, you know, you see, this is the problem. We've never had it go our way. Uh, so then suddenly when you're you're on the prevailing side, you, you lose the issue politically. It kind of works, you know, in reverse. And so what has Mitch McConnell done? As you say, he has focused mostly on the leaker and he's done something else that's been very interesting. He has turned to the words of Chuck Schumer who said, accused on the Senate floor, Mm -hmm. 
you know, of, of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh lying in their confirmation hearings. And then go, going back in 2020, there was this very interesting piece of tape where if you listen to it and depending on you know who's doing the listening, they might have different viewpoints. But he kind of gestures to, toward the Supreme Court and there's a crowd outside the Capitol and he talks. He calls out by name Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and says, you know, they will reap the whirlwind here. You know, we're basically coming to, coming after you guys here if you keep making these, as he termed it, bad decisions. And this is why now there is concern about security at the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Just this past week, you know, I reported that they were, you know, that they the first that they were going to put this fence up that looked like the fence that was around the Capitol, which they've done now at the Supreme Court. Uh, we haven't heard anything direct about threats uh, toward the justices here, but there is a, a group uh, that's going to go out uh, next week. I think next Wednesday uh, titled Ruth sent us and the Ruth, I guess, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg here yeah. to go to the homes of the justices next week in, in suburban yeah, that, Maryland and suburban that, that's Virginia. an extraordinary escalation. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And I know that and, that that is one of the reasons that that re- particularly Republicans are so uh, angry about this leak is, is they say this is an intimidation tactic. This is supposed this is intended to undermine the independence of the court. Let me talk to you about that side of it, because as you and I know, Chad, obviously the the draft opinion, if it is the final opinion, would be extraordinary. Overturning a nearly 50 year Supreme Court president is is a monumental shift in in the way that, that this abortion debate is being had here in Washington. And we've discussed that. But as consequential, maybe not as consequential, but as earth shattering is the idea that this type of document would be leaked. It's never happened. I mean, what was your reaction when you saw that this had been? I was stunned. Well, at first, uh, I, you know, I, they said, oh, you know, here's this leaked document. I said, I don't put a lot of stock in that because right. they don't leak these things. It's it not like the hill. The hill leaks like a sieve. That's yes, absolutely. And, and, and the fact that, you know, well, you know, what's the veracity of it, you know, and, and the fact that people had to go through and say, well, it really, really looks like a draft opinion. Even there's a way that they do it, the form, the mm-hmm. style, the footnoting, et cetera. And, and what it would take, you know, there's a pretty narrow universe of people who would have their hands on this. They do things mm-hmm. the old fashioned way at the Supreme Court. They do it, you know, with actual paper. And so there's a universe probably of about 40 to 50 people yeah. you know, who might you know, have their hands on this, unless you start getting into other people who are in the building, you know, and, and that could be, again, it's not open to tours right now. They haven't been open to oral arguments, but, you know, would, would it be... Still a pretty small know, universe of yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know who all works there in the cafeteria yeah. and the custodians and the police officers and everything else. And that's why, you know, it was interesting that Chief Justice Roberts the next morning said, yes, this is, in fact, authentic. Yeah, they confirmed the authenticity, but noted that it doesn't necessarily reflect what could be the final opinion. This is a draft. It was authored in February. People who cover the court know that these drafts are passed around and they're changed and you try and build consensus and all of that is true. But that's true of every major case. And something like this has never happened before. That's right. And that's why people are saying, is this what we're going to start to have with the court? Is this the new way of doing things? And who who did the leaking? Was it somebody on the left who wanted to get this out there? Somebody on the right who wanted to get this out there and make it look like it was the left? Uh, you know, there's all sorts of there's a lot of cons- a lot of conspiracy theories out there. I don't want to dive into those because we don't know. But you're right. There has yeah, been finger we, pointing we, from we everybody don't. about who could be responsible. Um, right. You know, and they do their own printing over there. 
They do. You know, yeah, they, they have their own print shop. This just so it's not like yeah. you know. The, That's why I say this is a really narrow printing office. It's a really small universe of folks. Um, so I, I guess I'll end with this. I mean, to your knowledge, just the, le- the, the a draft opinion at the Supreme Court is not classified, right? So it's not as if this is a. It's their own. It's their prosecutable own from like a a classified breach or anything. It's, right. It's not a national security issue in that sense where you could prosecute yeah. somebody on the, you know, but I mean, do you get them on some, steel like theft, theft of government property or something? Yes, exactly. You yeah. know, and, and again, we're into uncharted territory here, yeah. you know, and, and people, you know, you know, are expected to follow the rules. This is an independent branch of government. Um, you know, it would be odd to have, although people say, oh, the FBI should investigate. Well, that's a little odd to have the second uh, you know, the executive branch, executive branch of the government investigate the judicial branch. Yeah. And, you know, they do have their own police force over there under the mm-hmm. marshal's office. The marshal mm-hmm. is kind of like the sergeant sergeants at arms here at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. They're the civilian. And then they do have their own uh, police department. In fact, this has even come up from time to time because they're just across the street from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how much leeway do they get from the Capitol Police? Because that's, again, different branch of government. This is Article 1. That's Article 3 in the Constitution. Uh, years ago in the 1990s, there was a conversation about merging those police departments. And one of the issues they ran into is that it's a completely different branch of government. Can't work for two know? branches of government. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's unprecedented in a lot of different levels. So I appreciate you taking the time, Chad. We'll see what happens in the Senate next week as, as this vote happens. As you point out, the votes don't appear to be there, but it is shaping up to be a major issue, one we will likely, uh, likely hear a lot more about in, in the coming weeks and months as we get into a uh, the home stretch here of uh, of midterm season. So, Chad, uh, get some rest. Appreciate your time, and uh, have a great weekend. Likewise, thank you. Air raid sirens remain a constant in much of Ukraine. And for the thousands of Ukrainians still in Mariupol, the situation is far more dire. Reports late this week of Russian forces beginning an assault on a steel plant that has been sheltering hundreds of soldiers and civilians. Reporting, too, this week indicates Ukraine's military is gaining an advantage thanks to intelligence shared by the U.S. and other Western allies and may even have proved key in the sinking of a strategic Russian warship weeks ago. So we return to Ukraine and Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yinks to join me late Friday from his reporting perch in the capital city of Kiev. The United Nations says that around 500 people have been able to escape a steel plant in the besieged port city of Mariupol over the past two days. And this is a really promising development for the Ukrainians because it was very unclear if Russia would allow anyone to leave. There are an estimated 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers currently in the plant, and there are also a number of civilians who are trapped there as Russian forces continue to target this area. And So it really is a a situation of uncertainty because there is this question about whether or not Russian forces would allow a surrender or allow the Ukrainians who are still fighting there to leave. And if they don't, what we could see is a mass casualty situation where Russian troops continue to bombard the steel plant and these Ukrainians have nowhere to go. Who's in control of the city? Right now, Russian forces are in control of Mariupol. This is a town of about 400,000 people normally. Mm -hmm. Right now... The mayor of Mariupol says there are around 100,000 people left. And so you have many of these people living under Russian occupation. 
and just this final pocket at a steel plant that has nuclear bunkers underneath acting as a holdout for the Ukrainian troops. And so Russian forces don't only control this area of land, but they also control a lot of neighboring pieces of land in a place called Kherson, for example, where some intelligence analysts believe Russia on Monday for Victory Day will declare basically a separatist vote to create a scenario where they start to just recognize an area that 10 weeks ago was Ukrainian as Russian territory. I'm just looking at the geography here. So uh, Mariupol is on the, the Sea of Azov right there in um, the, sub, the, the southwest corner of Ukraine, right? Or southeast, I should say southeast corner of Ukraine. That, that sort of abuts what with the, the Donbass? Is that why this is such a critical city? It's critical for that very reason. There's an understanding that Russian troops are trying to cut off Ukraine's access not only to that sea, but also to the Black Sea. And it's part of the reason Ukrainian posture in the port city of Odessa that sits to the west of Mariupol has remained so high because Ukraine is concerned that Russian troops will try to work their way further west. Mariupol is critical because it gives the Russians more access to a land bridge to Crimea and then ultimately connected to the Donbass region where they control territory that allows for the free movement of Russian troops and people. And when I say people, I'm not actually talking about their forces. I'm talking about what the Russians have done in this area. According to reports, they've actually kidnapped civilians, Ukrainians, and forced them into Russia. And there are a number of extremely concerning reports coming out of this Russian-controlled territory that sits very close to Mariupol. And again, we only really know just the surface of what's taking place because Russian troops do not allow international journalists to operate there freely. It's not mm -hmm. safe to be able to go there and report. So what we're getting is really what you can skim off the top of social media reports that can be verified from Ukraine's interior minister who can talk on the issue and from other verified sources. But they are very far and few between. Uh, you mentioned Monday. I know that that is it's called Victory Day in Russia. Is that right? It's uh, the anniversary of uh, the defeat of, of Nazi Germany by uh, by the Soviets, right? Exactly. What is the significance of that as it relates to this uh, invasion of Ukraine? So the Russians have historically used this day to celebrate and have these grand gestures of military power. So we can expect to see Russian troops rolling through Moscow's Red Square. We can expect to see Russian forces in other occupied areas of Ukraine doing sort of bombastic displays of nationalism in order to pledge their loyalty to officials in Moscow and to Russia as a country. Historically, this has been used as a victory day and from a Soviet perspective, it's also celebrated and marked in Ukraine. But given the current environment and the actions that Russian President Vladimir Putin has taken, there is a concern that Putin will use May 9th, Monday, as an opportunity not to retreat or to sign some sort of agreement, but actually to do the opposite, to launch a larger mobilization of Russian citizens to participate in this war. And remember, Putin has called this so far a special operation. He has stopped short of calling this a war with Ukraine, despite the fact that there are thousands of people dying. There are clear pieces of evidence pointing to war crimes taking place across the country. And there is 
a very clear display of the largest ground battle taking place in Europe since World War II. But again, Russian President Putin is stopping short of calling this a war. What Western intelligence officials believe is that he will use this day, Victory Day, to announce not only a larger mobilization, but also to change the terminology and the reference points for the Russian population. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. policy as it relates to to Ukraine, because there was some reporting this week initially by The New York Times and then the Pentagon sort of commented on it about the type of intelligence sharing that's happening between the U.S. and Western European allies and Ukraine. What can you tell us about how that is influencing what's happening on the ground in Ukraine? So reports this week indicate that the United States is sharing very sensitive intelligence with the Ukrainians, allowing them to have an advantage when it comes to military operations. Some of the reference points include the Moskva, the flagship Russian vessel in the Black Sea that was hit with Neptune missiles and ultimately sank. Other reports indicate that American intelligence has helped the Ukrainians to take out a number of top Russian generals in the field. Now, the Americans say they are not participating in this level of intelligence sharing. And even some of the reports, including the New York Times, stopped short, according to certain officials, of declaring this level of cooperation. But it's significant because we do know the Americans are acting behind the scenes to help the Ukrainians. We do not know and and cannot independently confirm to what extent. But it makes sense and would point to some of the changes in U.S. policy we've seen in recent weeks that this could be taking place. It is significant also amid the backdrop of President Biden's new $33 billion request to Congress for aid to Ukraine, because more than $20 billion of that includes military assistance. We're talking about drones, artillery units, ammunition, critical pieces of military infrastructure that Ukraine needs to push back this continued Russian offensive. So those reports do indicate the Americans are not only sharing that critical military aid, but also intelligence. And they also point to the fact that some of the biggest Ukrainian military operations would not have been conducted in the way that they were without the assistance of the Americans. But a lot of this intelligence sharing predates the invasion, right? I mean, we we should remember the history here that Russia invaded at least a portion of Ukraine, Crimea, annexed it eight years ago. Um, So I would imagine a lot of this... Um, you know, intelligence sharing probably goes back to that time period. Some of the relationships do, certainly. The West cared, but not at this level, when Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014. They cared, but not at this level, when Russian-backed separatists were operating in Ukrainian territory. And so the size of this invasion has really changed the calculation for the United States, Because there's a real understanding that Vladimir Putin is even more unpredictable than previously understood by Western officials. And there's also a real understanding that if he doesn't stop at Ukraine, he would then be able to enter NATO countries like Poland, for example. And it creates this new, extremely dangerous environment where the U.S. has to constantly make that calculation about what is worth responding to and how hot the rhetoric should be. Because there is a real understanding here that Russia and Ukraine are one moment away from dragging in other countries to this conflict. And it would take something as simple as a single strike on the border between Ukraine and Poland hitting NATO forces, Polish forces, for the United States to be compelled and required by Article 5 
of this mutual defense treaty to respond. And so everything really is on a balancing beam here. And that is the difficult approach that the Biden administration has to consider. It's the difficult approach that every Western party that is at some level supporting the Ukrainians has to consider amid this war. Has there been any discussion in Ukraine, in Kyiv, from folks you talk to about the likelihood of uh, a NATO expansion that does not include Ukraine? Obviously, there's been some very public statements by Sweden and Finland that they are eager to join this alliance. How is that news being uh, taken in in uh, Ukraine, which certainly is sort of on the outside looking in here as it relates to NATO? I think there's a real understanding here that the things that Russian President Putin preached as pretext to this invasion are now not only untrue, but the grand scheme of his plan that he has publicly displayed appears to be backfiring. You have countries that previously were not very outspoken about joining NATO, exploring the possibility of formally applying for membership. When you look at Sweden, you look at Finland, you look at Ukraine, for example, early on in this conflict, the idea of NATO membership for Ukraine was still on the negotiating table. Not anymore, because Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saw what Russian forces did to his people. He went to Bucha, he went to Irpin, the suburbs of his capital city, and saw the mass graves. He saw the war crimes that were committed. And now for them to be formally labeled war crimes, they must be properly investigated and declared in an international court of law. But the evidence that we saw with our own eyes and with our cameras indicated that people were executed, that they were thrown into mass graves, that they were tortured in some cases, and that Russian forces did not always pick out their targets. They were firing into civilian areas. And sometimes when they were picking out their targets, they were purposely firing into civilian areas. So there's all of this information that basically has pressured Ukraine to a level at, at which it simply cannot just say, okay, you may have that territory in the east and we'll get some sort of agreement together. Even as recently as a few hours ago, Ukrainian President Zelensky made very clear there will be no territorial gains for Russian forces in any sort of peace agreement. He is unwilling to stop fighting back against this invasion until Russian troops go back to where they were in February, on February 23rd and February 24th, as this invasion got underway. Zelensky wants to make sure that Russian troops do not control Ukrainian territory. And right now, they control pretty large amounts of territory in the eastern part and southern part of this country. Let me finish with this, Trey. Um, what's life like in, in Kyiv right now? Ukrainians are desperately trying to get back to some sense of normalcy. You see it in the streets, you look into shop windows where people are unboxing what they had previously boxed up. There's a sense here that life could return to not normal, but to some sliver of what it looked like before this invasion began. But every time we look out and we see people walking their dogs or couples in a park holding hands and walking down the sidewalk, so often they are interrupted by the blaring sound of air raid sirens. Today alone, more than three times we've heard those sirens warning people to get inside and get underground due to the possibility of bombing and missile attacks. And so 
there's a real sense here that this isn't over. More than 70 days into the invasion, Russian President Putin has shown no indication that he's willing to stop the invasion, and he's shown no indication that he's willing to differentiate between military and civilian targets. So while some people here have relaxed in the capital of Kyiv, there is still this posture. There are checkpoints, far fewer checkpoints than when the invasion first started, but there are checkpoints. There are block posts. When you look out the window where I'm sitting right now, in the distance, you see sandbags. And on the side of the roads, there are these things called hedgehogs that are big pieces of metal meant to stop the advance of tanks and armored vehicles. So those things haven't gone away. But amid those very difficult images and difficult environments for the Ukrainian people, you still see humanity shine through. There are fresh tulips out in the Maidan Independence Square. We saw yesterday as people stopped and took photos with these beautiful flowers. There are still restaurants and cafes that are trying to gather together some staff and open again, at least until curfew goes into place. And so this is a country that we've said time and time again is resilient. We won't stop at that description of resilient because they're also quite traumatized by this experience. This is a, mm -hmm. a, a traumatic thing for a population to go through. But many here that we talk to are forward looking. They are hoping that their forces will keep a heavy posture and stance against Russian troops who are still trying to invade and advance into Ukraine. And they hope that the international community will not turn away. And I think to conclude here, that would be the final thought that I would share, is that everyone from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to shopkeepers who are trying to get back to business worry about one thing. There's a common thread here. And they are worried that the United States and they're worried that the West as a whole will forget about Ukraine. We'll move on to other news stories like the Johnny Depp trial or the Met Gala, or any other number of things that are happening in the midterm elections. And that's really the bottom line message is people want the world to know Ukraine still stands. Kyiv remains in Ukrainian hands. And with the support of the world, they are pledging to continue their fight against Russian troops who are invading this sovereign country. Trey, I don't need to remind you how important, how vital uh, the work you're doing over there is, but it's worth repeating the tremendous amount of courage uh, that you, your team, every international journalist in Ukraine is doing right now. We have seen firsthand the dangers of, of this conflict. And so I thank you for your reporting, uh, for your time, for this conversation. Uh, I wish you the best over there. Uh, stay safe. Pass along my best to the entire team as well. Thank you, Trey. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, a new line of attack from the White House ahead of the midterms. We'll talk about that and the changing of press secretaries with White House correspondent Peter Ducey. And Jessica Rosenthal looks at this week's primary in Ohio. What did we learn? What does it say about the influence Donald Trump still plays in the Republican Party? Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.